Welcome to the Kim Kim Podcast, where we share travel stories from all over the world. We learn from our local experts, travelers, and travel entrepreneurs. Travel is our way of life, and we aspire to inspire more people to travel to interesting places and to have memorable experiences. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the 14th episode of the Kim Kim Podcast. My name is Alex Burry, and I'm the head of community here at Kim Kim. Today, we'll be talking with Mara Larson. Mara has been organizing and leading trips around the world, including the Andes and the Alps, but mostly with the focus on the Himalaya. I've reached her in Chamonix, where for the summer, she's currently organizing logistics for people who are looking to climb and trek in the Western Alps. Nice to have you, Mara. Nice to be here. Thanks, Alex. Great. So um, you were saying you're just in Chamonix for the summer? Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm kind of on a little um, mountaineering world circuit most of the year. So the Himalayan season occupies the spring and the autumn seasons, of course, because that's when it's in good climbing and trekking condition. And then in, in between the two, I kind of take a little bit of a pause and a return to more running out here in, in the Alps. And, and what are the trips like that you're putting together for the people that are coming there? It's it's kind of a full spectrum. Um, I came out here initially working on the logistics for some of the climbing trips as opposed to treks. So things like Mont Blanc and the Matterhorn, um, you know, some of the really classic named peaks. But what's actually been growing over the last years is, you know, people are much more interested in kind of coming out and doing um, hut-to-hut trips and kind of exploring the quieter side of the mountains out here. So things like... Um, tours around the Mont Blanc Massif, something like the Tour de Mont Blanc, and then uh, Haute Route Trips, which is a really classic route going from Chamonix, which is on the French side of the Alps, over to Zermatt on the Swiss side. And it's a really epic uh, multi-day trip where you can either be roped together, climbing across a glacier, or do some sort of foothills and um, alpine kinds of trips a bit lower down. Oh, it sounds great. Yeah. So these are anywhere from three to four day trips that people are doing. Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, when people come out here, um, you know, you've got to give yourself at least a week or so to kind of get in and get into the elevation and, and uh, you know, get into the mode of walking and hiking. So I'd say most of the time people are coming out here doing somewhere between a week to 10 days. Are these people with a background in these kind of treks or, or trips or can anybody come and do this kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of fascinating because I think it's shifted uh, quite a bit over the last few years. I think in the past, coming out to the Alps was kind of something that you do walking, for example, as a retiree. You know, there are lots of these beautiful sort of wildflower trips um, with really consistent rolling trails in the lower foothills. But it's sort of been discovered and there's been a little bit of a resurgence, I'd say, in the last five five or so years where it's been kind of picked up by the endurance crowd and the ultra crowd wanting to get in and do some really, really hard days. And the advantage is because the trail system is really, really well marked here, the maps are excellent, and there's a series of mountain huts along the way, you can really adapt your days to doing something really hard and long. For example, you know, a thousand to a thousand meter, two thousand meter climbing day and end up at a, you know, this a stunning mountain hut where dinner is served, you can go in and have a hot shower and relax for the night, carry very little, um, and still have these massive days out. So I think it's, it's really starting to appeal to, yeah, to this sort of endurance crowd as opposed to just sort of retired folks looking to sort of amble through wildlife. So is it pretty busy there right now then, or? 
the, the yeah, July and August season are, are definitely busy. Um, you've got to kind of, you know, make plans quite a bit in advance in terms of booking out um, huts, in terms of getting flights in and out, that kind of thing. So I feel a little bit like a, a what would you call it? Somebody in, in charge of a, like a airline flights and all the rest. Um, just trying to monitor that side of things. But to be honest, coming out in September or on the shoulder parts of the season, so say early June to uh, mid-month or early to mid-September, you get the, the beauty of these, of these mountains and of this range, but without um, quite the huge crowds. And it's also because at that time of year, most of the European countries are off of their holidays and back in work and in school. So it, it definitely quiets down on, on this side as well. Yeah, that's that sounds like the perfect time to go yeah, in the shoulder stunning. seasons. So, how did you? I mean, just briefly, maybe you could tell us a bit about your background and how you ended up getting into these kind of mountain trips and organizing them for people, and uh, you know, kind of what led you to where you are now. Ha. Well, uh, yeah, it's a circuitous story, but uh, the short version is that um, right out of university, I was I was working um, on a NASA project, and at the time. They were looking to do a manned mission to Mars by 2020, which has obviously been been pushed back for a while now. But the idea was um, they wanted to use Mount Everest as a space analog study to see how the brains of cosmonauts would be affected by cosmic radiation in the same way that low oxygen seems to affect the brain at really, really high elevations. So basically, we went out and, and did a bunch of testing from Everest of the climbers as they were ascending the mountain looking at how their cognition, attention, um, ability to sort of be adaptable and flexible in their thinking, how that was all changing in a low oxygen environment. This was in 2000 and early 2000s? Yeah, early, early 2000s, 2003 to about 2005 or six. And basically um, what happened from there was, you know, I just kind of, I fell in love with the Himalaya. I had done a lot of distance running already at that stage. And I was suddenly in a point where I could put a lot of those um, skills to use in terms of having really long endurance days. And it seemed to serve me really well up at 5,000 meters on, on Everest Base Camp and um, that kind of area. So anyway, I stuck around and started um, managing expeditions, doing all of the logistics for the, the climbing trips on the peak for about a decade. And um, yeah, so it was, it was kind of a, a, wow. a dumb luck transition from doing some science research into uh, getting kind of fully immersed in, in the mountaineering world. Yeah, so you, you showed up to do research in 2002 or three, and then would go on long runs and then just ended up loving it and staying for uh, 10 years. That's a big, <laughs> Exactly that, big yeah. Just, you know, at a <laughs> certain story. stage, yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of strange places we all call home. But for me, you know, I would say for the greater part of the decade, ever space camp really was uh, my home away from home. Yeah, quite the so little you, community So you were at, um, on the glacier, at the base camp there? Is that where you were most of the time? Yeah, that's the right. Ever so in the beginning, the, the research was based out of there, and most of the um, testing we were doing was via radio and very early um, communication devices. And then later on, while managing expeditions, I was mostly um, at base camp, again, organizing, you know, rescue efforts, um, doing forecasting and that sort of thing. And, um, and then slowly over time started to kind of, I wouldn't say apprentice, but, you know, tag along with the teams, help with maybe easy load carrying, making food and starting to take care of folks a little bit higher up the mountain. And it kind of opened my eyes to, to climbing in the 8,000, in the 8,000 meter world more for myself. 
Um, and, and, you know, at a certain stage, it's great to just sort of be able to combine things that you're passionate about. So I was able to really transition my background in distance running into pushing myself at a pretty serious level at, at the extreme elevations. Cause a lot of those, a lot of the training is very similar. A lot of the mentality about getting out and having really long, hard days. Um, yeah, yeah. There's quite a bit of overlap. So when you were organizing the expeditions, this was for Jagged Globe? Is mm-hmm. that right? Well, yeah, a combination of companies. So I did quite a bit of work for a British company called Jagged Globe, and then um, some work with some American companies as well, and, um, and some Argentinian companies. So yeah, a little, bit of, a little bit of a mix of everything. Well, I mean, it must have been an interesting experience seeing these people heading off for, you know, one of the you know, hardest things, you know, quite a, quite a challenge to climb Everest. And then, uh, what, I don't know if whether they succeeded or failed and then coming back and, um, seeing what that experience was like must've been something. I think that's actually what started, you know, um, motivating me to start leading trips and treks myself actually was that I got so much inspiration out of seeing how these climbers evolved over the course of a two month expedition. You know, you, you have people that have come in with, you know, plenty of experience. They're obviously very capable and, um, had trained very hard for this over the years, but seeing how they how they developed in terms of their confidence and their understanding of their mountains of the mountains and and also just their sort of awe and admiration after that amount of time and so that's that's kind of what I wanted to take back into trekking and getting into more remote places in the Himalaya and then out here in the Alps as well was you know letting people kind of get inspired by what by what they can do for themselves um, and Everest was definitely the the grounding of all that for me. So after 10 years or after organizing all these trips in the Everest region, what then you branched out into different parts of the world, like the Andes, the Alps, and and how did that, how did that happen? (laughs) Um, Well, I think, I think what partly happened was that, you know, I, I, I realized that, and I think a lot of us go through this point in our careers where, you look ahead and say, well, you know, I'm working pretty intensely. At that stage, I was working on a PhD and thought, you know, I can come back and do this at any stage in my life, but when am I going to have the opportunity to um, to be climbing these crazy peaks all around the world? You know, I just felt like such a gift had been handed to me. Um, and so I kind of put my, my PhD on pause for a little while <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I decided to transfer my skills into, into leading trips. Um, yeah, so uh, you know, it, it was it was kind of a natural progression, I suppose I'd say. And I think what was really what was really inspiring for me was, um, like I say, having the background in high altitude medicine and high altitude science was helping people realize how they can train, and and how they can really um, start listening to their bodies in a way to improve their performance and and be able to get into these high ranges, regardless of whether they started out as an athlete or just somebody really passionate about walking out in the mountains. So when you when you went to the Andes, for example, was that with Jagged Globe as well, or is that with? A- yeah, yeah. So heading out to the Andes was with Jagged Globe. Coming out to the Alps was also with the same company. And I think, from their point of view, um, you know, it was great to um, you know give people opportunities when when we wanted to be kind of all over the planet. And as well, the logistics that go on on Everest are very similar to, on some level, to the logistics that go on out here in the Alps, where you're just constantly having to anticipate different changes in the weather and how that's going to affect where people are on the mountains, what kind of climbs they can get on. So in some ways it's, it, it is kind of, um, similar kinds of work all over the planet. 
Right. And are you still, you're still today running trips in these uh, three different continents? You go to the, the Andes in one part of the year and then the Alps. And then... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to consolidate a little bit um, um, these days. And, and I think you and I were talking about it at an earlier stage, but there's also quite a bit that I've found out here in the Alps and in the Himalaya that, you know, we have, that we can kind of simulate and, and do things with back in the U.S. too. So what I've been really trying to do is bring back some of these things to um, Northern California, where I'm spending a little bit more time in the winter months and helping people kind of build up skills and train to come out and do these things so they're not having to learn on the ground, um, you know, when they're 10,000 miles away from home. Right. So... For people that would, um, just for advice or recommendations for people that would want to do some of these trips that you're organizing and putting together and, and helping people train for, um, where would they get started? Is there, they would just sort of pick uh, a mountain range that they'd want to go to and then a difficulty level and then go from there or... You know, in, in my opinion, having uh, having started in kind of a funny way, I mean, most people's first entrance to the mountains isn't, you know, Mount Everest. Uh, what I've really learned and seen over the years is that people that focus on skills first um, just have such an incredible toolbox that they can get out and apply them all, all over the planet. So, you know, you like I say, you don't have to come over to the Himalaya to do an introductory alpine mountaineering course. That's something that you could do at home in England or do at home in, in, um, in the Sierras of, of California and building up those rock climbing skills, building up, um, experience with crampons and, and an ice axe back home. Um, you know, you can get up to say the Kirkwood area in, in Southern South Lake Tahoe and put incredible skills to use out there during the winter months that you could then use out here in the Alps in the summer or the Himalaya during our trekking and climbing season. So I think we actually have to give ourselves a little bit more credit at home that um, we just have some beautiful, beautiful mountains there that, that provide a lot of opportunity for, for growing those kinds of skills. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I recently just moved down to California and I still haven't um, explored much of the local area, but it sounds like there's a lot to do around here, as you're saying. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would encourage people, you know, if, if, if people are kind of listening and thinking, you know, where in the world do I start on this kind of thing? You know, there's there's a classic place called Lover's Leap, which is in uh, the Tahoe area, which has great amounts of multi-pitch rock, great place to learn starting out. Um, and then the other thing that we're doing out there in the winter months is um, organizing some ski mountaineering races. And it's the same thing. It's, it's getting these skills that you could use um, out in the Himalaya, for sure out here in the Alps, going hut to hut through the winter, but learning these skills um, out in California where, you know, maybe you're not as, as concerned about a giant crevasse opening up underneath you and, and the concerns of crossing a glacier, but you're learning the, the proper ski technique of how, how to get yourself uphill. Uh, ski mountaineering race, is that usually a, a multi-hour event or is it, can they also be multi-day or how does Ooh, that work? Um, I can't say I know of any multi-day events. That would be a yeah, maybe maybe, <laughs> maybe that's the next evolution of the sport. You never know. Um, but no, I think for a lot of people, particularly runners or uh, you know triathletes that are looking for something to do in the winter months, what's what seems to be really great in my opinion about ski mountaineering is that it's taking all the pressure off of your joints. Um, so you're you're literally on skis with something called a skin on the base, and what it does is it grips the snow as you go uphill, so that you're sort of sliding the ski um, with your heel. Uh, detached and moving uphill. So you're simulating, you know, um, 
not even simulating, you're doing a, a pretty in, um, intense endurance workout, getting your heart rate up, you know, improving cardio fitness, uh, but you're not pounding on your joints as you might be, say, running on an icy pavement all winter long. And um, it's something I've definitely picked up spending winters in the Alps over the years. Um, that's really helped me be fit for going out to the Himalaya in the spring and um, kind of maintaining the fitness to come into running in the summer months. And in, in general, it's actually just really, really good fun. But the races themselves, you know, we're, we're starting pretty small with, with the races in California. They're typically about an hour to two hours long just because so many people are new to the sport. There's no point in going from, you know, a 5K to an ultra marathon. Same thing with ski mountaineering. There's no sense in, you know, building up a skill set and then beasting yourself over a day that's just painful. <laughs> so th those things are certainly out there and they're goals that people can have. Um, beyond our race series. But yeah, we're just trying to make it more inclusive for people to come out and, and get a little bit of a taste for what it's all about. If people wanted more information, is there somewhere they could check out right now? Or Yeah, well, like I say, we, we have some races running in Bear Valley, so you, you can easily Google that. And then um, by about the end of September into early October, there should be more information up with the Sugar Bowl uh, Ski Resort, and that's where we're trying to run them okay. this coming winter. Okay, great. If um, I'll add those to the the show notes at the on our website, um, so people can check that out later. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great. So I guess in September you head back to Nepal now, right? That's right. Oh, and and what do you have planned for this fall there? Yeah, I'm transitioning a little bit from from doing the high peaks in the expedition world into um, some longer, more remote trips. So um, out in western Nepal, places like Dolpo and a little bit farther out from there, there are still loads and loads of these, you know, easier but unclimbed peaks in this sort of 6,000 meter range. And uh, for me, there's a lot of appeal in terms of getting people out to explore areas that might be a little bit more off the beaten track. So basically, I'm going out and doing a Dolpo trip um, September into early October that's more of a, of a recce than anything to go out there and kind of explore the area and see where we might come back to to do some easier trekking peaks down the road. So to, to get to Dopal, that's a, about an hour flight from Kathmandu? Or? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a flight in and then um, there's, there's various loops that you can do in upper and lower, and lower Dolpo. So we're doing, we're doing a pretty basic trek in. Um, I think it's going to be about... 10 to 15 days, all, all told. So not into the deep, sort of dark, remote border regions, unfortunately. Oh, wow. And then you'll, will you be doing other trips there as well after that? or? Yeah, and then basically what I'm trying to do is um, kind of do a balance of, of exploratory trips like that and balance that with things like I'm doing a, an Everest Three Peaks trip in November that's going to be a little bit more of a, of a quick trip for, for some friends and, uh, and family members who are looking to do um, not exactly a run through the Himalaya because I don't think they're in looking for something quite that extreme, but um, kind of linking days together. Um, so it'll be an Everest trip that's, I think, 12 days as opposed to the usual 18. Oh, wow. So it'll be a bit, quite a bit faster than normal. Yeah, but... yeah, yeah. And again, with doing a bit of pre-acclimatization um, first the, the, so that they do actually have the ability to get up above 3,000 meters without without too much suffering. That's great. Um, do you find going back to Nepal after all this time that things are changing quite a bit in terms of the, whether it's a trail running scene or the mountain climbing scene or? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, obviously it's it's changing on those levels, which I think is phenomenal for the country. I mean, you're seeing with with the development of the local running community, um, inspiration amongst not only just the villages, but even, you know, the kids in Kathmandu. So for example, this, this last spring while I was out there, we were starting some running races um, with some of the girls in the local schools thinking, you know, well, we'll, we'll start this easy, get girls out doing sort of a five kilometer trail race and, and see if we can build up from there. And we had, you know, fifth graders through seventh graders thinking we'd maybe get seven to 10 girls out on the first day. And I think we had upwards of 40, I mean, just massive numbers. Wow. And not only did they get out and just, you know, love the idea of getting out and doing sport for themselves because, you know, they've, they've really watched tourists and foreigners come in and really appreciate the mountains over the years. And I think it's a pretty exciting time that they're getting to explore these mountains for themselves and getting to make use of them in their own way. Um, but the part that was most amazing to me is that we got back and, you know, they were, these girls were so excited and we thought, okay, you know, what, what should we think about doing for, for our, for our next big race out in the next couple months. And, and the youngest ones actually said to us, well, actually, next time, can you take us up the bigger hills? You know, they actually wanted to go longer and steeper. And I just think that says great things for the future out there that, um, you know, that we're getting girls interested in sport at, at a young age and at a time where, um, yeah, where they can be looking in pretty positive directions for, for new things right. at home. And in runners like Mira Rai, who's obviously gotten a lot of international acclaim, um, she's obviously done, done tons to, um, to just grow the idea of, of girls being able to get out and um, find ways of exploring. Yeah, I know I've been following along with her, uh, you know, in, in the media with her over the years, and it's, it's amazing. She is, just has such a positive attitude and um, sets such a great example that I, I can see what you mean. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's great. Um, uh, thanks for coming on the show. I've been, uh, really appreciate uh, taking some time. It's been great hearing a little bit more about what you do, and I uh, hope to see you in Nepal this fall in September, October. Yeah, back. absolutely. Yeah. Alex, look forward to seeing you out there. Okay, great. Thanks, Mara. We'll, Thank uh, you. we'll be in touch.